What is up, people? Jose Nino here. And today, Malcolm Sheyuna is joining me for another fantastic episode of El Nino Speaks. Malcolm's work has appeared on various publications such as Unheard, The Bellows, American Affairs, and American Greatness. But I believe his best work can be found on his Twitter account, at Kingsorg, where he goes off on many doom posts. <laughs> How are you holding up these days, man? Yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. Uh, I feel a bit pensive about telling people my best work is on Twitter because I, I generally just see Twitter as sort of a place where you poke fun at people and sort of not take things too seriously. Like the sort of blue check stuff has never really appealed to me. But yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. Apart from living in Europe. <laughs> Yeah, no, Twitter is like the place where we can absolutely flex on these blue check types and laptop class people that are just always going nuts about like the latest outrage. And this is the best place to expose them. So I always take full advantage of that. And I see that you do as well. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that I'm doing fine apart from living in Europe, which is probably not the place you want to be right now for Various reasons, which we'll probably get into, but things over here are going a bit crazy right now. Yeah, before we dig into the main course, just tell people about yourself. Yeah, I'm sort of a quote-unquote public intellectual, I suppose. I mean, I write a lot about politics. You know, I have a background in the sort of materialist left, I guess you could say back when that was still a thing, which it really isn't now. And yeah, you know, I've mostly been writing for, I guess, people on the sort of populist right. Our mutual acquaintance, Pedro Gonzalez, has said repeatedly that like, he believes that we're living in a time where like, the old categories of left and right don't really matter as much as they do. Like We have to look forward and try to find something new. And I... I agree with him 110% on that count. So that's kind of where the main thrust of my thinking and writing is these days. And I also have a a friend, a, a fellow musketeer named Marcus Allard, who is sort of on the ground building like a new type of populist party, I suppose. So I have a sort of front row seat at like a lot of these political changes as they happen. So yeah, who would you say are your primary political and philosophical influences? I mean, there's a couple. I think that I had a period where I read a lot of Americans, actually. So people like Mearsheimer, people like Michael Lind, which I think is like his writing tends to be of very high quality and, and sort of describing the actual conflicts in, in American society, but also in Western society generally. So, I mean, I would put Lind as a big inspiration, but other than that, I mean, there are a couple, some probably like less familiar to English speakers, but in general, I read a lot of history these days mainly because it's really useful in trying to see patterns repeating themselves. Because like the thing you realize is that like a lot of 
what we consider completely new, such as globalization, for example, tends to actually have like a cycle. It comes and it goes. So it's hard to pick like any sort of particular inspiration in, in terms of, you know, like people who write history books. Yeah, I know it's interesting that you mentioned about like the cyclical nature of globalization, because you do see throughout history that there are certain system collapses that occur every now and then, and that this stuff isn't particularly new. You can maybe make the case that the present iteration of globalization was a lot more intensified, but it's really not that new. And a lot of people who are seeing this like total breakdown of like the supply chain and the international system are just cut off guard. But for like, as you mentioned, like Mearsheimer and those people, like for like seasoned realists, they do understand that this is how things normally work throughout human history. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, I'm interested in how you mention your involvement with like certain populist parties. Because from what I've gathered, listening to some of your podcast appearances, you actually do hit the pavement and have been engaged in politics in Sweden. What parties have you participated in there? I sort of came up in the uh, left party, the youth wing of the left party, uh, like 10 years ago almost at this point. Didn't stay that long. After that, sort of me and Marcus left and Marcus founded his own party called the Örebro Party. Örebro is just like the name of a town and municipality. But other than that, I sit on the steering committee of these sort of Swedish Democrat connected think tank, like conservative think tank Oikos. So I'm personally not necessarily like the guy who sort of often hits the pavement, but I do work for people who definitely do. So I I tend to think of my role as like the person who sort of figures out like why these things that are like working out in practice, why they work and how they can be improved. A lot of people, seeing as you are a person with like actual political shops yourself, you probably noticed this as well. But like, if you think about the dissident right, for example, there's a lot of people who just sit in their ivory towers or whatever, or like from an anonymous account somewhere in Brooklyn. And then they have all of these ideas about like what people should do and how things should work. And it's just disconnected from everything. It has no base. It has no sort of constituency. It's just sort of throwing like thoughts out into the ether. I've never found like any value in that whatsoever. So I I tend to think that if you are going to be a theory guy, you really have to have some connection with like actual party building, party work happening like on the ground. And from what I understand, you've been really involved in sort of Second Amendment issues. Is that correct? Yes, I I do have a background in that. That's ironically how I got into political work because I was a big theory guy back in the day. And I got into Second Amendment work through like an email marketing gig of all things. And then I picked up on that whole movement. I studied like the history of it and then started doing work. And I, I just look at the overall trends and I always point this out that 
in 2009, when Obama took office, there were only two states in the nation, Alaska and Vermont, with constitutional carry. That's just the simple concept that any law-abiding individual can carry a firearm without a permit. Let's fast forward to now, 2022. There's about to be 25 states with that law in the books, and it's probably going to grow to like 30 states by the end of this decade. And just studying that movement made me realize this is actually like a successful political movement on the right. And that's what I kind of teach people now because I I left that gig about three years ago. However, I I do teach people how to get more involved in local politics and state-level politics because that's the easiest way for people on the dissident right and other factions of the right that don't have institutional power to shake things up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these sort of people whose conception of politics is just, I should be the philosopher king who sits on high and just, I have a lot of great ideas about how society should run. No, like politics is a people business. It's Mm -hmm. about, to quote the scary orange man, it's about making deals. It's about building a sort of, you know, local institution, power base, whatever you want to call it, and sort of getting pork for your people, like rewarding friends, punishing enemies, all of that stuff. Like it's much less theoretical than some people believe, but it's also, I mean, it's an art more than a science. Like you, you really have to learn on the, like if you're a police officer or whatever, like your first years, you're not going to be a detective. You're just going to be walking a beat, right? Well, I mean, politics is kind of the same Mm. way. You really have to, at some point, walk the beat if you want to get anywhere. Yeah, you have to learn by doing. That's what I've picked up on in politics, that you have to really get in the mix of things. And that's how you learn about stuff. And that's how you can, like, construct a theory later. Because I do have, like, in, like, the newsletters that I promote, actionable advice that I picked up over the years that I've been able to more or less like systematize and also other people before me because this is stuff that was passed down. It's kind of like a multi-generational thing that certain people in right-wing circles were able to gather. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't really understand this info, but it's just like a matter of people getting away from the internet and actually interacting with people in real time because that's really what a lot of politics boils down to. Yeah. So I actually found it interesting that point you raised earlier, how you came from more of a quote-unquote materialist left background. What prompted you to eventually make these partnerships and alliances with elements of like the Swedish right? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite simple, which is, it's not so much that I changed, but like, I remained in place. It's everyone else who moved. And, And by that, I simply mean that you come into the left thinking like all of these just like ideas that are complete bullshit like you you think that the left oh well you know these people are fighting for the working class or whatever and then it's it's just not true i mean it was true at some point possibly but certainly not today and so what we sort of realized over time both me and marcus is just that you can be on the left if you're willing to fight for sort of PMCs, the email cost or whatever, like the laptop class, then these people have their own class interests that are completely at odds with 
like the majority of working class people, sort of lower middle class people, small business owners, and so on. Like the great majority in our society is sort of opposed to these people. And, you know, I was never really interested in in fighting for, you know, podcasters in Brooklyn or whatever. Like that's, (laughs) that's not what I believe. And so insofar as the right and there are problems with like the rights commitments here because like a lot of the time and you saw this with what happened in the US for example after after the war in Ukraine like you really start seeing how like talk is very cheap a lot of the time and you know talk about realignment and America first and an end to all stupid wars like yeah sometimes when the going gets tough Maybe not all of that talk is serious, but insofar as it is serious and insofar as there is an interest in sort of, to put it in a colloquial term, defending middle America or middle Sweden, whatever the case may be, like, yeah, I I have no problem being on the same team as people from the right. Yeah, I've grown to realize over the years because I got into politics principally because of the war issue. Because I that's one thing that's been consistent in my politics since more or less like 2007, is that I've been a pretty staunch non-interventionist and realist for the most part. And I've noticed one of the more interesting developments on the left is that it has become markedly hawkish on the war issue. And some nuanced ways too, where you'll see even so-called anti-war leftists will say, oh, I'm anti-war, but I'll rule, repeat the CIA or deep state narrative and support this color revolution that's taking place in X country. (laughs) Yeah, that's the state of the modern left in many respects. Yeah, and you saw something very interesting in, like if you, which I do, which is maybe the listeners are blessed in that they don't follow on Twitter on the dissident right. Because after this war in Ukraine, you saw a split even among dissidents in terms of, we have to defend NATO, we have to defend the global American empire because, you know, I'm a racist and these people are Mongol invaders in my pure Aryan (laughs) Europe or whatever. And you realize that, like, no, this isn't about Aryans against Mongols. It's just about when there's a crisis, these people infallibly return to sort of the bosom of the global American empire because, I mean, they're dependent on it. So you saw this split and, you know, I I actually stoked the flames of, of this particular split. But you saw the split between people living in these sort of urban centers who are, you know, based epic dissidents, and then people on the right who are conservative and live in sort of peri-urban or like rural areas. And, you know, this was cast as some sort of, you know, moral conflict or whatever. But it turns out that if your interests are Like, if your lifestyle is dependent on American empire, whether you belong to the left or the right, or whether you're based racist or cringe and blue-pilled and, you know, civic nationalist or whatever, like, that stuff doesn't matter. 
as long as you are dependent on the American empire to survive, to reproduce yourself, in a crisis, no matter what you say, like when there's no cost in saying it, like in a crisis, you will return to like your class interest. Mm, yeah. Actually, you kind of noticed that too with what's his face? Uh, Richard Spencer now has like on his Twitter cover photo the NATO logo. It's like that's all that needs to be yeah. said. <laughs> they talk about a realignment. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, and I've come to sort of, you know, appreciate Spencer for what he actually is over time. Like, this is a guy who is completely honest about his political commitments in, insofar as, like, you know, his commentary on the whole NATO thing was just, I had a Russian wife, and, you know, she let me hit it raw or whatever, and so, obviously, I would be a Russian nationalist. But after she divorced me, like, why am I going to speak, like, positively about Russia? I, I don't get anything for it. So, I stopped being a <laughs> Russian nationalist after my wife divorced me. And, you know, it's just, like, demand is on that grind. Let's just put it that way. And also, like, with his sort of attitudes, why he voted for Joe Biden. I mean, he's also very honest about it. He, he just says, you know, I'm from New England or whatever, like, you know, an upper class person by birth and my, you know, destiny. And I hate Trump voters. I hate shots. I hate flyover people. Like, they are worthless maggots. And I at one point thought that Trump would let me sort of have these people as my plantation slaves or whatever. But now Trump has failed. So, like, these Democrats, they're more like me in terms of their class and their mannerisms. So, obviously, I'm going to support the Democrats. Like, it's refreshing to have that kind of honesty because almost everyone else just says, oh, no, 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 I think we should, you know, focus on the cities because this is my grand strategy to win for the conservative team or whatever. Fellow shuds, like I, I, I am totally not just a Brooklyn podcaster hoping to use you as like a cat's paw, as a shock troop or whatever. No, Spencer just comes out and says it. Some interesting trivia about Spencer Heem grew up kind of close to where I lived in North Dallas, but he lived in like a much more upscale area, went to a prep school and all of that stuff. And in many respects, he is reverting to the class mean now that his politics are much more mainstream because he he has an interesting political journey. He was like a Ron Paul guy, then went kind of like paleo-conservative and then alt-right, and then now pretty much like an edgy, like shit lib. So yeah, that's not surprising given his background because a lot of people's politics is like determined by like their class and all of that. And speaking of NATO, I wanted to ask you this because I've been seeing a lot of pundits on Twitter just pounding their chests about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict unifying Europe in terms of NATO members such as Germany boosting defense spending and other countries like Sweden and Finland potentially joining the alliance. If I'm not mistaken, you've kind of poured cold water on those takes. Yeah. And why do you think such perspectives are misguided? Yeah. 
there's a lot to unpack here, as the saying goes, because if you think about sort of NATO as an organization, what people today tend to gloss over was, how did the saying go? The point of NATO is to keep the Russians out, which has kind of run into a snag, given that Ukraine was angling for NATO membership, and they sure as fuck aren't keeping the Russians out right now, I can tell you that much. So keeping the Russians out, not exactly a a thrilling success at this point. But also the point was to keep the Americans in, and by that, having a sort of forceful American presence in Europe. Like if you think about stuff like Operation or the Reforger exercises, which is an acronym that stands for Return of Forces to Europe. That was these massive like American military exercises with NATO from these late 60s, I want to say, maybe early 70s, to um, the year I was born was the last one, I think, 87. But, you know, you had like 100,000 American troops, 150 or whatever, just doing these massive military exercises. But, you know, that era is kind of gone. Like, the American military is not what it used to be. And also, there's supposedly going to be this pivot to Asia that everyone keeps talking about, but doesn't really happen. But like in in a conflict with China, like the U.S. is is just going to say, well, peace out, we're leaving. Because there's no way the U.S. can stomach a conflict both with China and with Russia at the same time. And I think that everyone in the sort of halls of power in America agrees that if you can only choose one of these conflicts, you're going to choose China because China is much more important. So like the point of NATO, which is to keep Americans in because Americans are sort of the actual elephant in the room, the 800 pound gorilla, like the one with the military muscle. Keeping the Americans in is kind of looking dicey but also keeping the Germans down was the third leg of the NATO stool. And you know, keeping the Germans down is kind of important. People are just saying, oh man, Germany, it's rearming. It's going to be so great. Like the good old days of NATO when NATO was strong. And it's like, bro, (laughs) the point of NATO was to make sure that Germany could never cause more trouble because Germany was sort of consolidated by the Prussians in the second half of the 19th century. And after that happened, there's just been a whole series of completely psychotic wars involving the Germans until, you know, the most psychotic war in the history of the human species, World War II, after which Germany was divided and disarmed. And it had two 800-pound guerrillas sitting on the Soviets on the west eastern part and the Americans on the western part. Like, if you remove that, if you say, well, we're going to have, you know, Washington go and do their own thing, and also Germany is going to have the most powerful military in Europe again, <sighs> like, people are just, I don't know what they're smoking if they think this is going to lead to peace. Yeah, I think there's a lot of 
wishful thinking in the DC blob and also Brussels with regards to that. And I do agree that all things being equal, the US will be forced to make a hard pivot to Asia because of the simple fact that China is one of the few countries left on the global stage that can make a legitimate play towards regional hegemony and basic realist logic would dictate that the U.S. is going to try to check that and dual containment is very unviable. Now, I want to go back to Sweden because I've always been interested in the politics and I think that as well with what's going on now across Europe, you could see some major changes to its overall image. Now, just to start off, what are the dominant parties in Sweden and which are like also like the insurgent populist parties there that are trying to mix things up a bit there. Yeah, okay. So the dominant parties are, number one, you have the Social Democrats who have been sort of hegemonic since the close of the Second World War, you could comfortably say. They were very strong before the Second World War, but then you had a bunch of unity governments and so on. But like after the Second World War, they just started dominating. Like, the U.S. was essentially a one-party state for a very long time. So, I mean, imagine if Roosevelt, FDR, had lived until he was like 180 years, no, well, 120 years, let's say. And, you know, there were no barriers to re-election. Like, he would have been president for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, that's kind of what happened in Sweden, in a sense. So. Like the Social Democrats completely dominated the moderate party. The main right party were sort of very marginalized. They managed to sneak in like one short government in, you know, 40 years or whatever. But I mean, they've been growing stronger mainly because the Social Democrats have been weakening. And the moderates are mostly just sort of like your garden variety sort of pro-business globalist Republican, like, you know, we should deindustrialize the heartland and move everything to China because meh, GDP. That's kind of <laughs> what the moderates are about. Like, you know the type very well. I- I'm not a huge fan, let's just say. Then you have the Sweden Democrats who are in a very unfortunate and tragic position right now because um, in a lot of ways, And you see this dynamic very strongly in in the U.S. as well. So it's kind of an international phenomenon. But the Sweden Democrats have people who are somewhat like economically conservative, I guess. One sort of contingent of them that they've like voters they've taken from the moderates. But they also have a lot of voters they've taken from the Social Democrats, So the Swedish Democrats are kind of like the American Republicans in that you don't really have a lot of people who are like permanently on sort of social security or whatever who vote for the Sweden Democrats, but there are some. And you don't really have a lot of high elites who vote for the Sweden Democrats. So you kind of have this sort of high-low mix against the middle, kind of, which is, you know, a big sort of figure of thought in the U.S., So the Sweden Democrats are kind of in an awkward position because their coalition partners now are the sort of 
Chamber of Commerce Republicans, if this was the U.S. And given the sort of war fever, they've also, the right has been essentially calling for like opening Sweden's borders in order to take in as many migrants as possible. Oh, um, man. Yeah, because, you know, we're going to stick it to Putin. Like, there's nothing Putin is going to hate more <laughs> than having people who would, you know, stay and fight him flee to Sweden and live off of Swedish social security. Like, he hates that because it's going to cost Sweden a lot of money and it's going to remove, like, people who could be potentially problematic. That Like, like if you don't like the way Ukraine is going to go under Putin, just leave and go to Sweden and live off of Swedish social security rather than trying to fight the government and getting blown up. So the Sweden Democrats are now in the position of essentially saying that Sweden should open their borders and we should take in, you know, a quarter of a million refugees or whatever in a country with 10 million refugees. And we should do it because we don't want to be racist and it's time to be humanitarian and so on. The exact same arguments that were used in 2015 when the Sweden Democrats said, like, no, like the job of a Swedish politician is to prioritize the interests and needs of the Swedish people rather than, you know, becoming a sort of hostel for like every wandering peoples in the world. So, I mean... These populists have now been forced to sort of really, really compromise themselves. And I think that this is going to be very fatal because unlike the refugee crisis 2015, we have out-of-control inflation in the West. In 2015, it was like 1.2% or something. People were constantly complaining about inflation being too low. We have to do things to get inflation up from 0.7% to uh, 1.5% or maybe 2%, which was the official goal. Like, what can we do to raise inflation? Well, I mean, they figured something out because now inflation in many countries is like 10 12% and rising. So things are not looking particularly good for sort of the populists from the right in the Swedish context, I would say. Hmm. Sweden has always interested me because you have several elements of the American left that portray it as a beacon of progressive governance, high living standards, high social trust, et cetera, et cetera. How accurate would you say that depiction of Sweden is? I mean, it's still pretty accurate. It's not as accurate as it was 20 years ago, but then again, things are going south in the U.S. from what I gather. So, uh, I mean, in relative terms, we're probably still ahead, even though things are kind of taking a turn for the worse. But yeah, like Sweden actually has sort of ballooning, what's the word I'm looking for? Like income inequality. Like Sweden has actually become a very unequal country in a way. But like, mm, I guess people don't really care about it as much in Sweden because there's still a sort of a functioning safety net and so on. Like people still have a very decent standard of living. Like things are not necessarily breaking down around us. So like there is some truth to the idea that like if you have a decent standard of living yourself, you probably don't care whether there's like 10 billionaires or 100 or whatever. But 
that's a situation that can't last because things really are starting to break down now in a lot of different ways. And here, I mean, the right is just so incredibly irresponsible. Like, you have this war and everyone just says, oh, well, you know, we should join we should join NATO because that's never going to come with any sort of negative consequences at all because, you know, Americans are always going to die for Gotland. Every American knows where all the islands in the Baltic are and have a deep-seated emotional connection to uh, preserving, like, Sweden's territorial integrity or whatever. So there's no problem there whatsoever. But also, the idea that we can sort of take in invite the world and also sort of blockade Russia economically when it sort of supplies us with like the fertilizer, industrial metals and so on that we need to keep some sort of semblance of an industrial economy going. Like everyone on the right cheering for this fucking crap is just going to wake up one day and realize that, wow, We had no idea that this would hurt us, just as sort of American conservatives woke up one day and said, wow, you know, nobody could have predicted that moving our own industry to China, our main rival and enemy, was actually bad. Like, how how could we have known? Well, I mean, first time as tragedy, second time as farce, I'm inclined to say. No, indeed, that stuff is pretty. It's pretty fascinating how you see the right fall into like the same traps in a lot of like Western countries. And I've written some articles about the factional infighting within the American right, especially in the context of the Russo-Ukrainian war, because a lot of so-called populists, such as like Josh Hawley of like Missouri, have effectively towed the party line in terms of dumping a ton of military aid for Ukraine against Russia. And yeah, that's, that's just, I think, a part of like a protracted struggle now as like the more Tucker Carlson types and Buchanan types try to scuffle with neocon and neocon adjacent Republicans. That's going to be something that plays out in the next decade or so. But yeah, I mean, you guys have a struggle at least. We don't. I mean, it's completely one-sided here. Yep. That's how it kind of goes in a lot of places. So, yeah, like, I think one of the most bizarre developments of Western politics, in my opinion, like the last five decades or so, has been the proliferation of cultural leftism, whatever you want to call it, like wokeism, political correctness, and all that. Is that pretty prominent in Sweden? You know what? Actually, not really, in a way. And I think that Mm. people have these preconceived notions about Sweden. And if you lived in Sweden in 2008, let's say, like before the election of Obama, everyone just thought that America was a country, like people don't realize here in Europe a lot of the time that America is not a country of one thing. It's a country of incredible extremes. So in terms of abortion, there are places where it's very hard or almost impossible to get an abortion and like it's strictly regulated. And then, you know, there's places where the doctors will almost offer to, you know, kill the child after it's out of the womb or whatever for you, if it's convenient. 
where like with regulation that like people in Sweden who think of themselves as being like incredibly progressive would just find appalling, frankly, like completely unconscionable. So everyone in Sweden up until the election of Obama, which was like really hyped up here because it everyone thought, oh, well, you know, this is finally the chance for America to become more like Sweden, which is, you know, progressive and correct about everything. But like before that, everyone thought, well, this is just Bible thumping city. Like all of the US is like the Westboro Baptist Church or whatever. Like, you know, it's all Salt Lake City, Mormons, crazy Christians running around thumping Bibles at each other, whatever, which obviously was not the case. But like this self-conception of Swedes being sort of the not just the first among equals, but just the first people, period, like the most progressive people in the world, like that was maybe true in 2006, but it's not true now. Stuff like this anti-groomer bill, like the don't say gay bill, like there's no way, no way in a thousand years that you could sell this crap to even sort of the left party here. Like no way whatsoever. It's such a complete non-issue here, you know, teaching like seven-year-olds about being trans or whatever. Like, it's not happening. It's not going to happen because there's nobody pushing for it. Like, there are people in Sweden, quite a lot of them, who share the same sort of intellectual priors as, like, you know, progressives in the US. But there's much less of a culture war. And I I've written quite a lot about this, but my sense is just that you get this culture war when there's a huge need for a jobs program. And this might sound reductive, but if you think about the don't say gay bill, as as it's colloquially called in Florida, like who exactly are the Republicans fighting here? Because polling shows that there's not a huge gulf between Republicans and Democrats in sort of whether they approve of the don't say gay bill. In fact, the majority of Democrats approve of said bill. So in a country where there's huge polarization between the Democrats and Republicans on a myriad of issues, with this grooming stuff, everyone suddenly agrees. Like maybe 60% of Democrats think the don't say gay bill is a good thing, and 72% of Republicans think it's a good thing. But like, this is not hugely polarized. So who exactly is DeSantis fighting? He's not fighting against, you know, the masses in a divided country. He's fighting against, like, bureaucrats who are for this stuff and will be for it, even if the voters think differently. But surprise, what the voters think doesn't really matter here. But in Sweden, like these bureaucrats, they have so many ways to get paid that they don't really have to get paid through grooming or or any of that, like culture war stuff a lot of the time. That's pretty interesting. Now, Sweden has received a lot of attention, and I think you alluded this before in like 2015 for the large wave of migrants it received. 
Is this a recent development or has Sweden had a relatively loose migratory policy in the last few decades? I guess it started becoming much more open. I mean, it's been a series of waves, essentially, but the really open-door policy began like in the early 2000s, I would say. But now they've completely lost control. Like There was an open letter publicized in France by some retired generals that got a lot of publicity. And these generals essentially said that they were afraid of, you know, civil war coming to France. And here's the thing. Here's the big open secret in Europe that nobody really talks about because everyone realizes it. And so, like, nobody says anything. But, like, when someone warns about civil war in Europe, they're not talking about, you know, Catholics shooting Protestants or whatever. They're talking in France about sort of French people getting sick and tired of Muslim immigrants and, you know, ethnically cleansing them, telling them to grab their stuff and leave France or get shot. When people warn about, like, the U.S. kind of has a potential for actual civil war inside the polity, like, you know, between Americans. But, like, people... If you talk to them off the record in Sweden, like an awful lot of people are talking about sort of getting rid of the immigrants or like what would happen in a conflict between Swedish people and immigrants. And it used to be that like people talked about this in terms of if something were to happen. But every year that goes more and more people are talking about it in terms of when it's going to happen because more and more people think it's going to happen. So, like, in a country that has received, I don't know, like 2 million immigrants in in sort of 25 years, and, you know, 2 million in a country that is now up to 10 million people, like, that's an awful lot of immigrants in a very short time. Some of them have assimilated very well, but, like, A lot of them from the Middle East, for example, have not. And so it's a really unstable situation because like the middle class in Sweden, which has sort of prided itself of being this humanist bulwark or whatever. Like if you go onto Twitter and you look at the most bloodthirsty people, like talking about war crimes being really epic and like we should have more war crimes. It's these middle class blue checks. Like, if you're an immigrant and your safety and prosperity in Sweden or France is in the hands of these people, you have really good cause to be afraid for the future. Oh, no doubt. These people are pretty unhinged, like the PMC types. They live in a total Marvel fantasy land when it comes to this war and have like zero grounding in reality for that matter. Yeah, for immigration is the commitment to this quote-unquote open borders policy in Sweden. Is that very bipartisan? Is that like something that the mainstream parties universally hold? Or is there actual growing dissent now? I mean, it's kind of like the question of the war or imperial warfare in the U.S. That's how immigration works in Sweden. 
So in Sweden, you had a bipartisan consensus, just like you had a bipartisan consensus that actually Iraq was really great up until Trump came. And nobody, nobody took him seriously. Everyone tried to sort of uh, sideline him and sandbag him and so on. But, you know, he won not because he had any help from the Republican Party or, you know, like these total pacifist opponents of wasting American blood and treasure like Marco Rubio. No, like he, he went at it alone, but he managed to succeed because at the end of the day, like this was very popular among American voters. Well, I mean, the immigration issue worked exactly like that. You just have to substitute Donald Trump for the Sweden Democrats. So the Sweden Democrats move in. They get into parliament 2008, I want to say. Maybe it's even later than that. Maybe it was 2012. Oh, sorry, no. It's... They get in 2010, but they're very small at that point, and everyone just thinks they're like a, a one-hit wonder. And then they actually grow to like 14% in the 2014 election, and people are just losing their crap over it. But then eventually people are forced to reckon with the fact that like Sweden can't take more immigrants. And it's like among working and, and sort of lower middle class people, it's massively unpopular. So just like Trump sort of twisted the arm of the Republican establishment in order to make a critique of essentially make the um, Buchanan tack line something that was actually socially acceptable to say. So did the Sweden Democrats twist everyone's arm on immigration. But just like in the US, when there's a new war in the Ukraine, like all of this arm twisting, the effects of it sort of disappear or at least like massively recede. For now, the right is now completely like, you know, in open borders mode. And the, uh, <laughs> the anti-immigration party, the Sweden Democrats are now saying that, oh, well, you know, we'll just have to try to take in another quarter million because maybe this time it'll work out better. You don't want to be unpatriotic here. And it's actually like the uh, social Democrats that stand the best chance of just capitalizing on this because they have this sort of fortress Sweden sort of inward-looking isolationist instincts that the right coalition partners of the Sweden Democrats don't. Has there been the Swedish equivalent of, say, like a Ron Paul or like a Pat Buchanan ever emerge like in the past few decades? Or is that something just like really particular to the U.S.? In what way? I mean, I think that someone like a Ron Paul or a Pat Buchanan is sort of particular to the U.S. because I think the closest thing you have, and it's, it's not really comparable, but you have like these populist candidates who were quite early in like the sort of anti-immigration nativist talk, like Beth Carlson and Ian Wachtmeister. But it's kind of a different dynamic. Like the Buchanan is like a serious politician. Yeah. I wouldn't call Beth Carlson one. And he had this sort of fly-by-night party that got like 14% of the 
electorate in, in one election in the 90s and then collapsed a year later. Other than that, it's just been the Sweden Democrats who have sort of been the ones sort of making the case for nativism. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, let's um, shift our gaze to the U.S. because your takes on American politics are pretty intriguing. Some people might say they're a bit doomer, but that's why I like it. <laughs> and in what ways do you see politics in America getting more volatile in the decades to come? Yeah, I'll, I'll just address the doomer bit uh, for a minute first, if you don't mind, because it's really <laughs> like I had a I was doing a podcast with Chris Buskirk, if you know him from American Greatness, among other things. And this was like summer 2020. And, you know, people called me a doomer then for saying that, well, you know, I think there's some trouble coming down the road for the American Republic. But like, it was impossible just two years ago to imagine where we would be right now with like, you know, 10% inflation, January 6th, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and so on. So, I mean, it's hard to call myself a doomer these days because I tend to be like too optimistic about how things are going rather than, you know, too pessimistic. But with that said, so, I mean, the huge problem, the elephant in the room in, in terms of where the U.S. is going is just, like, what's actually going to happen in the election 2024? Because you had, like, several retired generals, I think, who published a op-ed in Washington Post, where they basically said that the military is unreliable and the Republicans are going to try to steal the election in 2024. And, you know, if Trump wins, that's illegitimate by default. And so we'll have to call in the military, but we can't trust the military. They might start smuggling arms from bases and just use them to contest the election. When you have, like, brigadier generals, like two and three star generals, just saying openly that they don't trust the troops to not make a total mess of the election on either side of the issue. Like, that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen at all. No, I actually agree with you on that because I do think that there is a strong chance that, like, in the 2024 elections may not go down, or at least there's going to be some severe modifications and or quote-unquote fortifications to it because there is now a strong sense of illegitimacy of the electoral process. If you look at it from a big picture point of view, first off, in 2016, you have people on the Democrat side of the aisle that believe that Russia elected Donald Trump and treated that election as illegitimate. I mean, those claims are absurd. But then you have 2020, which I believe had much stronger claims about election irregularities and voter fraud. So you've had like two elections where where a substantial segment of the American population did not really believe in the results and ascribes to certain conspiracy theories, true or false, whatever, that 
explained the results of those elections. I think that's like really unsustainable. We're like really heading into uncharted waters when it comes to politics in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, like you, you see this constant polarization and you also see, I mean, I had a discussion about this with like a, a blue-pilled friend here in Sweden because the narrative over here was just that there's no proof of electoral fraud. There's no proof at all. And, you know, the things that look like electoral fraud, there's totally like no hard and fast evidence that it's actually electoral fraud. It might look like ballot stuffing. It might smell like ballot stuffing, but whatever. Like, unless you have a smoking gun, it doesn't really matter. And even then, you just one smoking gun, who cares? You have to have like 10 million of them before. Like, this is a serious thing. And, you know, this was the general zeitgeist in Sweden, but it was clear to an astute observer that the confidence in the other team had been lost. So, yeah, like there was a lot of electoral fortification going on, right? And, you know, some of this stuff might actually pass muster in in a republic where each side trusts the other side to be like fundamentally honest. But once you start having, you know, you know, like electoral stations just saying, oh, well, you know, we're not going to count the votes until a week after the election for reasons. Don't ask what the reasons are. Like, it doesn't really matter if they count count the votes one week later and it's all on the up and up because like nobody's going to trust that. So you have this, sort of like complete loss of faith in the system. And like nobody seems very interested in like doing what it takes to um, like restore faith in the system. But you also have this completely unsustainable economic situation with runaway inflation. And, you know, the culture war is a really interesting thing here because there's this sort of Bernie bro slash, you know, like, I don't know, Chamber of Commerce Republican-ish explanation where, you know, the Chamber of Commerce Republicans say, well, all of this is a distraction for what we really need to do, which is, you know, cut taxes. While the Bernie <laughs> bros say all of this is a distraction from what we really need to do, which is to raise taxes. And, you know, people keep talking about abortion and grooming and so on, but this has nothing to do with cutting or raising taxes. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, there's not really often a war of ideas going on in the U.S. Like, that's just on the surface level. So if you take this sort of, don't say gay, the anti-groomer bill in Florida, for example, there's no polarization between Republicans and Democrats in terms of, like, once you actually read the bill, a majority of Democratic voters agree with the bill. It's like, you know, 62% Democrats and 72% Republicans, something like that in the poll I saw. So there's no polarization here. So on the face of it, there shouldn't really be a culture war raging over groomers. Because I mean, like, there's no mass base for having groomers in schools. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is obviously fighting someone. He's not like shadow boxing against a wall or something. So you have this constant struggle in the US between what you can call sort of the deep state, 
Though the deep state usually refers to, you know, like, you know, alphabet soup agencies and so on in Washington. I'm talking about the deep state in the widest possible sense, like people that you can't really fire very easily. And that like normal people, they can't vote these people in or out of power at all. So this includes, you know, civil servants, teachers unions, stuff like that. Like basically like eunuchs in the imperial palace of of China or something similar. And, you know, those people are not really interested in sort of allowing democracy to continue in the U.S. Like, you have all of these school board meetings, right? And you have parents going to school board meetings, as is the right, because, you know, the U.S. is supposed to be a federalist, like a federal republic. It's not supposed to be a centralized state, which is why you can vote for county judges or county sheriffs, at least, school boards, stuff like that. Well, you know, that is now being cast as sort of domestic terrorism by the FBI, for example. So as a friend of mine put it, like the big tension in the US is that like the American sort of constitution, as well as like the sort of way the society was built was not really like American society was not built to be an empire, right? The founding fathers explicitly said that, you know, empires are bad and we should be, you know, a constitutional republic. We shouldn't even have standing armies if we can avoid it because standing armies lead to tyranny. Well, I mean, the US is an empire right now. It's also kind of a a failing empire. And what that means is that the sort of civil institutions, like the, the political institutions, are no longer like the right size, the right configuration for what the US empire needs to do to survive. So so you really like this is the sort of big question for the next 10 years. Like, is the US gonna try to salvage its empire and completely lose its republic? Or will it try to salvage the republic and probably lose the empire? You're already seeing several fissures. And I talk about this a lot because I write significantly about nullification where, for example, on the left, you see a lot of Democrat states have sanctuary cities where illegal aliens are just allowed to roam free and complete dereliction of federal law, and also the rise of marijuana legalization at the state level. But the right has also played this game, too, with their sanctuary counties for Second Amendment and also some pro-life stuff. I think this stuff is going to intensify as the country becomes polarized. Plus, we have to remember, too, there's been those clashes with the state guards and like National Guards concerning vaccine mandates and other policies. Because like the U.S. is ultimately a decentralized republic, at least on paper. And I do believe that once a lot of right-wing people start going more hardcore with state-level and local-level action, you may see a constitutional crisis emerge. It's just that when I talk to people, they're always obsessed with federal politics. But I tell them, like, sometimes, like, the biggest ground you can make is at the state and local level. 
And people are catching on, in my opinion, because uh, as I mentioned before, constitutional carry now is in like half of like half the states in the country. And this trend, I think, is only going to get stronger as people get more tribal and as confidence in institutions breaks down. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think it's very likely, actually, that and this is a very common historical pattern, like you have these, generally, history moves in cycles. And what you see is, like one of the big sort of super cycles tends to be between centralization and decentralization. So you have like empire building, you know, you centralize everything, but then for some reason, like the costs of centralization start exceeding the benefits at which point people generally try to keep centralization going, even though it doesn't work because like people are politically invested in it until the machinery breaks. And then you have this period of, I mean, more or less like almost warlordism in the case of China, where you can see the cycle repeat itself constantly throughout history. Well, you generally have like straight up warlords, you know, China divides into several smaller states. There's a period of sort of of fission where one big state cracks up, forms a lot of smaller ones. Then there's a period of instability and then there's a period of consolidation where, you know, sooner or later, like a new emperor is crowned because he's like the biggest warlord who managed to beat everyone else. And this is not unique to China. You see this stuff in, in Japan and like a lot of Europe. And I think this is a fairly likely prospect for the U.S., actually. I think that like American elites in Washington are going to keep doing what they're doing until everything breaks, until you have local governors basically saying, yeah, well, you know, I don't really care what they say in Washington. Like they can come over and try to enforce the writ if they want to. And, you know, you already see a lot of this with like Ron DeSantis, for example, like he is probably the governor that seems like the most in a sort of like preparatory mode almost for like if shit hits the fan. I'm pretty sure Ron DeSantis will have some sort of contingency plan to make sure that like his constituents in Florida are taken care of, even if the federal government starts dropping the ball on a lot of stuff it's supposed to be doing. DeSantis, if I'm not mistaken, is trying to resurrect the Florida State Guard, which was originally disbanded. So he is definitely a few steps ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you have the Florida State Guard. You have, what else am I thinking of here? Like you have his attempt to create some sort of alternative to OSHA, I think, because like basically so that Florida can be immunized against all of these mandates vaccine mandates. And, you know, it just keeps going from there in a way. I do really think that, like, what you're seeing right now in terms of, you know, states just ignoring federal regulation and precedents they don't like, like, you know, once that bug bites, you've already lost a patient in a way. Like, you know, if Donald Trump wins, like, if, he, if he's the candidate in 2024, 
like if Donald Trump wins, he's not going to be able to really enforce a lot of like federal legislation on sort of Democrat states. I'm pretty sure that like the Democrat states will just go, you know what, like you're a fascist, fuck you, we're not going to do anything you tell us. And then, yeah, you can try to drag that through the courts. But like, first of all, you can't trust the courts if you're a conservative, generally speaking, because, you know, this is a class issue. The sort of people that manage to get through elite schools so that they can become judges, not really salt of the art types. So, I mean, like Trump will probably try to keep some semblance of order by sort of like trying to force states to go along with like his edicts. But it's it's just going to be a drag out fight. Like very little will be done. Very much will be sandbagged. And once that really happens, there's no way Republicans are going to look at that taking place over four years and then go, gee, golly, when the... Democrat wins the next time. We definitely are not going to ignore any sort of rules we don't like because that would be unfair. Like, obviously, like once someone starts doing this because they just go, well, you know, you aren't even a legitimate president. Like, you know, everyone's going to start doing it. Yeah, definitely interesting times that lie ahead. Now, Let's talk about populism more broadly and just like the prospects for it in the long term. How do you see left or right wing populism playing out in the next few decades? Do you think these movements are electorally viable? Yes. I mean, I do think that populists are going to have to sort of figure out which side they're on. I don't mean this in a sort of left versus right sense, but I do mean in a class sense. So if you take someone like Eric Samoul, for example, in France, who was a huge thing on the internet and on Twitter, and if you follow like, you know, American conservative media as I do, well, surprise, surprise, everyone was a huge fan of Eric Samour. Too bad the guy got like 8% and got like completely destroyed in the election by Marine Le Pen. But the thing is, the interesting sort of wedge issue here that everyone sort of danced around was that like Marine Le Pen has a her strategy is basically to appeal to the losers of globalism, like flyover country. And Eric Samour, like people just said it straight up, that Le Pen just keeps talking about like proles, workers, shods, people in ruler, rural areas. Samour, he speaks to everyone. Like he's uniting everyone under the banner of the right. Unlike this parochial Le Pen who only talks about the damn workers. Like, can we please stop talking about them? Well, I mean, for someone who's supposedly, you know, unifying everyone, like he really didn't do a very good job of not getting into fifth or sixth place in an election. Because again, like, 
are you going to be a populist for who? Like, who is your sort of group that that you're going to defend? Is it going to be people like American kulaks, small business owners, plumbers, pilots, and so on? Or are you going to try to defend people who... uh, you know, live in some like Democrat city and generally sort of are mad because there's not enough seats on the Titanic. Like there's not enough deck shares on this sinking ship. Like we need, we need affirmative action for white people into Harvard. We need to do something about all these damn Asians. Like there's too many Asians. Like I'm not saying that this is necessarily a like it's morally wrong or whatever to to be a populist for urban like college educated people i'm just saying that these people are just going to lose like there's no electoral path to victory because at this point trying to unite sort of classes groups of people that just have different completely different interests is sort of like running into a wall in terms of like how far you can take that. Hmm. Yeah, this is going to be one of the more intriguing battles that you'll see, especially on the populist right in like the US, because there is the constant debate on whether class-based or Identity-based approaches to politics will yield the most results. That's to be seen. But I think this is a good place to wrap up this discussion. Malcolm, where can listeners follow your content? I mean, I publish a weekly column, Compact Magazine, founded by Sora Bamari and Edwin Aponte, as well as Matthew Schmitz. So if they want to like read something I write like fairly regularly, I think that Compact is probably the best place. Otherwise, I shit post on Twitter. I sometimes publish in, you know, other like magazines in English. And they can also find me at the Good Old Boys podcast where I make fairly regular appearances. I strongly recommend the Good Old Boys podcast. I'm subscribed there and they have great content. And yes, Malcolm dropped some major knowledge on his appearances for the Good Old Boys. And yeah, thank you again, Malcolm, for coming on. Really enjoyed the conversation. And I hope to have you on again sometime soon. Yeah, sure. That would be fun. Laters. Yeah, and to my audience, thank you again for listening. And until next time, El Nino has spoken.